Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Paul writes, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And Father, we do. We have hope through the encouragement of the Scriptures. We are strengthened to persevere. We are so blessed, Lord. And I I pause this morning in the midst of all this to thank You for Your Word. Thank You for blessing us, Lord, with the written Word, with the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, how You have spoken so clearly. Mark spoke of covenants this morning and how You have laid these things out so that we might understand. And truly, Father, all that is incumbent upon us in this is to read it, to receive it, Father, to believe what You have spoken. And I pray for hearts to believe and to receive this morning. And I pray, Lord, that we will be encouraged by Your Word and through Your Word as we study today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Romans 15.4 was a favorite teaching text for this individual, especially later in life. In fact... Hugh became part of a select group of men. A handful really teaching the Bible in very dark times. Some of the darkest of times, what we know of as the Dark Ages. In days before the Reformation, he was the Bishop of Worcester and later chaplain of the Church of England. Early on, Hugh described himself, he was so opposed to those early reformers that he described himself as, quote, as obstinate a papist as was any in England. If there was someone who was going to stand up for papal authority, it was Bishop Hugh Latimer. However, after hearing a moving confession from a young man by the name of Thomas Bilney, he had a radical change of heart. Never underestimate the, the power of a conversation especially where you're bringing God's truth. This young man, Thomas Bilney, went to him in confession and began to speak to him, and the things he shared truly rattled Hugh Latimer's world. He began to preach publicly that, yes, the Bible should be translated into English for all people to read. At that time, it was only Latin. Only the priests could read and disseminate the things of the Word of God. Well, Bishop Hugh Latimer said, no, this should be translated for everyone. This was at the time when the first uh, translation of the New Testament, the Tyndale translation, had been completely banned in the empire. Latimer ended up being jailed twice in the Tower of London. And as he grew older, the threats against him grew louder. Latimer once said, quote, it may come in my days old as I am. Or in my children's days, the saints shall be taken up to meet Christ in the air, and so shall come down with Him again. He was referring to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But Christ did not come in His days. In fact, in 1555, He was brought to trial. Latimer at that time was too old even to testify. And so He testified in writing, and He wrote against the unbiblical nature of the Catholic Mass. The council, under the authority of Queen Mary, pronounced the death sentence to which Latimer responded to the court, I thank God most heartily that He hath prolonged my life to this end, that I may in this case glorify God by that kind of death. They took Bishop Hugh Latimer. They took another man by the name of Nicholas Ridley. They tied them to the stake. And they lit the flames. As the fires rose up around these two men, Latimer spoke these final words to Ridley. While he was being executed, he said, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. A man who was willing to die for this word. And Romans 15.4 was a favorite text. Bishop Hugh Latimer is a picture for so many of perseverance, of encouragement, of hope. And this is the stuff of the Scriptures. What is it that enables a man to stand in the flames and make such a statement? What is it that enables a man, toward the end of his life, mind you, he probably didn't have many years left to live anyway. 
Why go this way? Why not just go quietly into that fair night? And yet, he stood for the word and he stood on the word. What is it that gives someone the strength to do that? And it is the word of God. Understand, as Hebrews 10.36 tells us, you have need of endurance. You know, we, we pray for our veterans. We memorialize them. And yet John was telling me just this last week, I believe it was just this last week, in Congress someone stood up to read from the Bible what the Bible said about homosexuality and 35 different congressmen walked out. Walking out on the Word of God. Now, no doubt, there are things in the Bible that offend you. I can tell you honestly, there are things in the Bible that offend me. The things that offend me in Scripture are the things that need to offend me. That need to stop me in my tracks, turn me around and help me to see clearly what I don't see in my sinful state. And so just the reading of this caused the walking out of so many. These are the days in which we live. You have need of endurance. Hebrews 10.36 So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You want to stand strong as a follower of Jesus in this world? You stand on His Word. Be a child of His Word, a student of the Word of God. Now, Paul wrote, and I remind you at the time of this letter to the the believers there in Rome, that the word Scriptures, whenever Paul refers to the Scriptures, in fact, the New Testament reference to the Scriptures typically meant the older Scriptures, that is, the Hebrew Bible. Those were the scriptures available at the time. Writings just were beginning to get sent and passed around among the churches. But anytime someone said the scriptures, they were referring to the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, the writings. And it's not as some some have said that the New Testament belongs to the Christians while the Old Testament belongs to the Jews. I completely reject that. And as a church fellowship, you know that because we started in Genesis and went all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures prior to even coming to the New Testament. Because all of the Scriptures are God's Word. All of the Scriptures are available to us, are for us, are given to anyone who's willing to listen to what the Father has to say. Charles Spurgeon said, The Old Testament is not outworn. Apostles learned from it. Nor has its authority ceased, it still teaches with certainty. Nor has its divine power departed, for it works the graces of the Spirit in those who receive it, patience, comfort, and hope. Thankfully, as what Chuck Missler likes to say, what was in the Older Testament concealed, we now have in the New Testament revealed. You really need both together to get the full picture of the Word of God. And so again, Paul writes, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. The Scriptures. The Scriptures. In the Greek, it's that word grapho. And it literally refers to the writings. The word Scriptures, grapho, writings. Now, Paul says something interesting. He says, whatever was written in earlier times, that phrase, written in earlier times, is a single word in the Greek. It's prographo. Earlier writings, uh, first writings, or prior writings. And again, speaking very clearly of the Hebrew Scriptures. Back in the very beginning of of this letter, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul wrote, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The grapho, the prographo, that was written before. So again, the complete written word of God. But remember this. The Hebrew Bible was open-ended. The Hebrew Scriptures did not close down with the last words that were penned there by Malachi. The Jews awaited further instruction. They awaited revelation. They knew there was more to come when their Scriptures were completed, as it were. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, the last verse written says, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so they're left with that thought that restoration would come, that something's going to happen. 
Then, of course, history talks about 400 silent years. I don't really think God was silent, but for 400 years, there was no prophetic word given, no more grapho written. And so the people waited to see what God was going to do. Now today, if you were to read the Hebrew Scriptures, if you were to take the Tanakh, which is a, uh, a word speaking of the Hebrew Bible in its entirety, if you would take that and look at it, it ends with Chronicles. Even ending with Chronicles, you still have an open-ended book. You still have a book that, that ends, Chronicle ends with them being told by Cyrus that they can go back to the land. And of course, go back they did. But the the Hebrew Bible, what I'm saying is an open-ended book. A people waiting for God to come. A people waiting for Messiah. Something else was necessary. Now, people will come along and say, Yeah, but don't Muslims claim that the Quran is the fulfillment? I mean, you Christians say it's the New Testament. Muslims say, no, no, no. The New Testament was a little bit more, but the Quran is now the, the complete fulfillment. What about the Book of Mormon? Mormons will say, well, no, this is the the additional gospel. This is the the next text. What about the Baha'i faith? They have their scriptures. And you can look at all various uh, religions of the world, and they all have scriptures that continue on or go on, and, and many have some that they tap back into the Bible and say, oh, yeah, that's good, but we have more. Listen, with the New Testament... God was absolutely clear to shut the door on all continual written revelation. With the closing of the New Testament, God stopped all further written revelation. We need to understand that. Islam came after. Mormonism came far after that. All of these who would try to take and change or alter or add to the Scriptures are doing so at their own risk. For the Bible itself says, Galatians 1.8, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And I've told you before, to me that one verse undermines all of Mormonism because Mormonism says that the revelation was brought to Joseph Smith by the angel Macaroni. Macaroni. Sorry. The idea is an angel brought this. Well, even if you accept for a moment that an actual angel named Moroni came to Joseph Smith and gave him the scriptures, that angel should be accursed according to this word. The Bible is clear. Paul even says in Galatians 1.9, Again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be accursed. John shuts the door even tighter in the Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And you don't want those plagues. He says in Revelation 22.19, If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. The Bible. The Bible is the whole Word of God. It's the complete written Word of God. Now, I'm not talking right now specifically about the work of the Spirit who speaks to us clearly and all the time. But I can promise you this, the Holy Spirit's never going to tell you to do something in contradiction of the Scriptures. Because the Bible is the complete written Word of God. The Spirit will give us insight. The Spirit reminds us of what Jesus taught. The Spirit speaks to us clearly and brings wisdom and understanding. And we will get into the things of the Spirit more in the, in the study in First and Second Corinthians. But please understand, the Holy Spirit does not contradict Himself. Therefore, He will not contradict the graphone. The written scriptures as God gave it. 2 Timothy 3.16, you may be familiar with this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And Peter, Peter wrote this to the scattered believers across Pontus and and Asia. He said, this is now beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. In which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember, number one, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. And secondly, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, the Older Testament and the New Testament. 
Peter, toward the end of his life, would say, pay attention to the Word of God. Listen to the Word of God. Now this morning, I want to go old school a little bit. Because again, pondering just this one verse, it really stood out to me as I read, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And the truth is, the further into the newer testament we get, the easier it is to forget the wonderful things that we have been taught through the Hebrew Scriptures. Man, when we were in the Hebrew Scriptures, we were in the thick of it. But now in the New Testament, we could set all that aside and say, okay, that was good, that was fun for a season, but now we're into the stuff that matters. No, listen, the whole thing matters. And so this morning, just to remind you again of what the Hebrew Scriptures mean to us, as well as the New Testament. I want to go old school. Because in Romans 15.4, Paul lays out three points, which are our points this morning. Three points in the prographo, the, the Scriptures written beforehand that I want to consider today. And point number one is the persevering word. The persevering word. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through... Perseverance. Hupomone. Hupomone in the Greek is also sometimes translated patience. Or even better, it's patient continuance. It's ongoing patience. Well, I can be patient for five or ten minutes. You know. If I'm in line at the DMV, I can I can wait, you know, twenty minutes. I can be patient. It's patient continuance. It is long suffering. It is endurance. Have you ever in your life asked the question, How long, O Lord? How long am I going to have to wait? When will you answer my prayer, God? When are you going to reveal your will to me? Or maybe even something as simple as, When are you going to come, Jesus? If you've ever asked the question, How long, you are in the place of hupomone, of learning, of developing, of growing in patient continuance. Listen, old Hugh Latimer did not see the rapture in his days. He did not live to hear the calling out of Jesus. He martyred long before that. But you know, it didn't seem to bother him. Why? Because the Word of God impresses upon us a patient continuance. And the patience you may be called upon, or I may be called upon to have, may go past my death. Understand, I may need to be patient on into my own death. Patient continuance. Consider from the Hebrew Scriptures, which teaches us this patience, people like Noah. Noah called upon, Genesis chapter 6 through 9, by God to build the ark. How long did it take him to build the ark? 120 years. This was not a short building project. Nicolo Bruno built my house from from the beginning of trying to just get the the permits to do it to move in was 19 months. It's not his fault. But I thought, you know, six or seven months, not a big deal. And then we had to start getting the permits and working the process. And and I don't even know how long it was before we started building, before we broke ground. Patient continuance, Noah built on that big boat for 120 years. Now, he was doing other things at the same time. He was preaching the Word of God. Throughout that time, Noah was a prophet, and he was warning people. It wasn't as if the flood came suddenly and people had no idea. They'd had 120 years of this prophet preaching what was coming, and they just wouldn't receive or accept it. But Noah was a patient man. Waiting for rain. What about Job? Anyone had a life as devastating as the life of Job? I I see him sitting there trying to sort out his devastation in a heap of ashes. It was Job who said, or James said this of Job, James chapter 5 verse 11, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, or some Bibles translate the patience of Job. It's the hupomone of Job. And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. But you don't get that till the very end of the book of Job. I, it's funny, I, I think back to some of these books that we studied together and walked through. And I remember coming up to Job, and you have no idea how terrified I was. 
of many of these books. Leviticus, I had no idea how we were going to cover that one. You know, first and second Chronicles, and then Job. How were we going to navigate Job? And I came at it with, with trembling and with temerity, only to discover the book of Job is an amazing patience builder. Not because it's long and difficult. No, it, it became one of my favorite books. And even to this day, I lo- actually have 66 favorites. <laughs> But Job stands out. It, it became for me in that season the most encouraging thing we had yet studied. Job. In all of his mess. It was Julius Caesar who once made the very famous statement, experience is the teacher of all things. But Benjamin Franklin came along and he said, experience is the best teacher, but a fool will learn from no other. And that's the thing. When you think of the prographo, the things written beforehand, yes, truly, experience is the best teacher, but it doesn't have to be your experience. You can learn from the experience of others. That's what the entire Old Testament gives us. The experience of others in relationship with God, walking through life, dealing with the pains and the agonies and the struggles and the successes of life and doing it in a godly and sometimes a not-so-godly way. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Genesis 12 through 50. And isn't it interesting, we're talking about the prographo and what was it that Mark shared for communion this morning? He went back to our covenant God, back to Abraham and Isaac. You see, without that understanding, we don't fully comprehend what it was God was doing through Jesus on the cross. But through Abraham and Isaac and and the, the sacrifice that almost happened of Isaac and that whole life and the sacrifice and the covenants and all of the blood and the things that we see in the prographal, the things written beforehand, well now we come to Jesus and everything is enlightened. Everything makes sense. And we are encouraged with hupomone, patience. How long? How long did Abraham have to wait for the fulfillment of the covenant promises of God. Any answers for that one? He's still waiting. He is still waiting. Patient continuance. Isaac, Jacob, they had to wait and wait. They would not see the fulfillment in their lives. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 11.39, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. You are part of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Isn't that remarkable? Patient continuance. What about Joseph? Genesis 37 through 40. A picture of a man whose entire life was a patient continuance waiting on the Lord to accomplish His will when when Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers. When he was twice thrown into prison, when he was finally pulled out, when he was finally lifted up, when he finally saw his brothers again, patient continuance. What about Moses? Moses raised a prince of Egypt 40 years and then, and then fleeing for his life. And I really wonder across 40 more years in the wilderness of Midian with a bunch of stinking sheep, did he ever get depressed? Did he ever just figure, well, I guess that's it. I guess my life is pretty much meaningless. The only people who are going to remember me are a bunch of sheep. I mean, think about that. If you were in Moses' shoes, we only know about Moses because of what happened when he turned 80 years old. 80! And that's when God called him to be the deliverer of the people of Israel. Patient continuance. What about David? Ten years. David waited and fled for his life. Ten years from when he was anointed by Shmuel there in Bethlehem to when he was actually crowned king. First over Judah and then it was a little longer until he was crowned over all of Israel. He had to wait and wait and wait. And by the way, the patient continuance of all these Old Testament saints, as we like to sometimes call them, All these stories, they are told with absolute clarity. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. God doesn't mince words. These were sinful people. 
People whose faults and whose failures and whose flaws were candidly written down so that we can now look back on them, the pro grapho, and learn from the messes that they made. Man, I understand some of these attitudes, some of these failures. I get some of these sins. It actually makes sense to me why Abraham would go into Hagar. He didn't know any better. He had to make it work. Now, I wouldn't go to my wife's handmaiden. You probably are appreciative of that. (laughs) But the idea of him doing that is he had to make it happen. How many times have you had a sense that God had a plan for your life and you had to make it happen and you just messed it up? Well, Abraham... And so the sins are out there and the flaws are out there that we might learn from their experiences. They were people just like us. Study them. Look at them. Think about them. Learn from them. And recognize this great truth. For all of their sin, not a single one of these Old Testament examples are remembered in terms of their sin in the New Testament. Do you realize that every saint of the Hebrew Scriptures listed in the New Testament, you will not find a single negative thing individually listed about them. Not a single one. Talk of Abraham is always cleaned up. Even Lot is talked about as a righteous man. That righteous Lot, he lived in Sodom. Righteous Lot. And why is that? Man, go to the New Testament, you're not going to find a single reference to the sinful failures of any of the patriarchs or prophets, priests or kings. They are all presented positively, every single one of them. Because you see, in the New Testament, they're redeemed. Just like you and me. In Christ Jesus, all of that failure has been washed, is gone, is not, is not even considered, it's not remembered by the Lord anymore. Once Jesus comes, it all gets washed away. Jeremiah 31-34, God said, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And the New Testament is proof of that. You do not have the remembrance of any of the sins of the Old Testament saints. The prographo. Let me give you one more character. Speaking of patient continuance. One more persona out of the Hebrew Scriptures, and that is Jesus. Jesus. Wait a minute. I I, I thought we were talking about the program, the the things written beforehand. Oh, I am. In fact, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Let me ask you this. What kind of patience lasts from the days of eternity? Oh, Job was patient, sure. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, all the men that we listed, and many of the women that are throughout the Hebrew Scriptures as well listed as as an amazingly patient people waiting on the Lord. But you know what? You think you're waiting for Him? You think I'm waiting for Him? How long has He waited for us? How long has God been patient with me? 2 Peter 3.15 says, Regard the patience of our Lord. As salvation. And if you study the scriptures, you know the value of such patience, even in hardship or in trying times. God wants to develop patient continuance in us. Let me just read this to you. This is over in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Peter, writing of this patient continuance, says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Note that the proof of your faith is more precious than gold. Not the outcome of your hope. Not the things that you're working toward. Not the things that you desire or want. That's not the stuff that's more precious than gold. What's more precious than gold is faith. And that's what God is working out in us. And He's working it out differently and uniquely in all of us. Your problems are different than mine. Your challenges, your struggles, different than mine. And yet God is working on our faith. 
But Peter says, and though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now listen, listen to this. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You see it there? All my patient continuance pales when compared to His patience across the centuries. Peter reveals to us, and it's one of my favorite scriptures, that it was Jesus who was speaking to the prophets about Jesus. It was Christ who was telling the prophets about Christ to come. Who had to be patient? He did. From days of eternity, He has been patient that the entire plan of God would be worked out. And so the more we patiently continue in the Word the more God develops Christ-like patience in us. And if you're struggling with something and you're wanting something to happen, go to the Word and sit in patience. And Jesus promised, Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Persevere. God has given us a marvelous tool to help us in that perseverance and that development of patient continuance. Well, the persevering word is just number one. Secondly, the encouraging word. Back in Romans 15.4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, the encouraging word. When you're discouraged, go to the Bible. Go to the things written beforehand. And you will find great encouragement. Hugh Latimer understood exactly what Paul was talking about. Hugh Latimer understood the encouragement of 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18. That is the rapture of the church. He was the one quoted as saying, Perhaps in my lifetime we shall see this happen. Even if he was coming under threats from the government simply for wanting the Word of God to be in the hands of the people, he said, Maybe, maybe we'll see this happen. Christ will call us out and then we will return with Him. And He understood this and it brought great encouragement. What what does 1 Thessalonians 4.18 tell us? Comfort one another with these words. Bring encouragement. How early was, by the way, the picture of Christ coming to get His people out? How early was that presented to us? Well, it's in the prographo. Seven generations from Adam in the life of a man named Enoch. Enoch. I love Enoch. I can't wait to meet this guy. Chapter uh, 5, verse 24 of the book of Genesis. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him, and Enoch knocked, knocked on heaven's door. You know, he's... Sorry. Hebrews 11, 5. Explaining that. He walked with God and he was not for God took him. What does that mean? Did he die? Did he pass out? Did, did God just... What happened there? Hebrews 11.5 By faith Enoch was taken up. Harpazo raptured. So that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up he was pleasing to God and without faith it is impossible to please him. Encouragement. I'll tell you what, on the worst of days, I can remember that any time Jesus is calling me home, and I'm instantly encouraged. And Enoch shows us that early picture. How about Hezekiah? Hezekiah, from the former things written, when it seems like the entire world is set against you, Hezekiah is a great example of this. He he came into the temple, he spread that nasty letter before the Lord. Do you remember the story? Hezekiah was king there in Jerusalem. And mighty Assyria was bearing down, had already wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. And now was was pressing into Judah and had wiped out many of the major cities in Judah, heading toward Jerusalem. And now 185,000 Assyrian soldiers surrounded Jerusalem. They couldn't get in or out. They'd look over the walls and there's this massive army of Assyria. And here's King Hezekiah. What is he to do? 
1 Kings 19 tells the story. Isaiah 37 recounts the exact same story. Judah under siege by Assyria. Hezekiah calls on Isaiah, who was prophet at the time, and says, Isaiah, pray for us. And Isaiah comes back, Isaiah 37 verse 6, and says, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And truly, Sennacherib would go back to his own land because of a rumor that he heard and would be killed by his own sons. God's word was borne out. So an encouraged Hezekiah takes this, this letter, this letter written by, by a government higher up named Rabshikeh, an official of Sennacherib wrote this letter threatening the life of Hezekiah and all of Judah. We're going to come in. We're going to wipe you out. He takes this letter. He goes up to temple. He rolls the letter out before the Lord and he prays there for deliverance. And you know he gets it. In fact, right after that prayer, Isaiah shows up. God dispatched the prophet once again to come and say, your prayers have been answered, Hezekiah. And you know what the scriptures tell us. The next morning, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers woke up dead. I don't know how you do that, but I love the Scriptures. (laughs) They woke up and they were all dead. The people of Judah woke up to find the soldiers dead. 185,000 corpses. It's a remarkable story. Incredibly encouraging. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord and was delivered. What about Isaiah? who was prophet at that time. The entire third book of Isaiah's prophecy, beginning in chapter 40, running through chapter 66, is called the book of comfort. I mean, how encouraging is that? You want comfort? Start in Isaiah 40 and just start reading. It begins, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. And of course, that famous verse is right there in Isaiah 40, verse 31, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Show of hands, how many have been encouraged by that verse? Amazing. At some point in your life to hear that and realize, I just got to wait on the Lord and I will fly again. I will have strength again. I will mount up. Man. Hezekiah, Enoch, Isaiah, all the prographos, so encouraging to us. What about David? David again. How many of you, another show of hands, have been encouraged simply by reading one of the Psalms? Remarkable encouragement. We know where to go to find it. It's right here in the Scriptures. And by the way, in this encouraging word that is like no other. You know what the Greek word is for encouragement in Romans 15.4? Paraklesis. If it sounds familiar, it should. It means comfort. Comfort, encouragement, paraklesis. It's the same root of parakletos. Jesus says in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another parakletos, a comforter, an encourager, a helper, that He may be with you forever. John 14, 26, But the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Guess what? He's doing it right now. He's bringing all these things to our remembrance. I love when He does that. John 15.26 When the Comforter comes, whom I will send to you, Jesus says, from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. Which is why I've said to you, anytime that you are focused on thinking about and worshiping Jesus, the Holy Spirit is hard at work. Because He brings remembrance of Jesus to us. John 16, verse 7, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. The Paracletos, the Encourager, the Comforter, it's His name. And Jesus is Himself the comfort of the Scriptures inasmuch as Jesus is the comforting Word. The Encourager made flesh. And where the Spirit of Christ is, there is Comfort. And I have found this to be true over and over and over, and it increases as I'm in the Word. That even in the mechanical study of the Word, 
the mechanics melt into encouragement. Let me say that again. I want you to get this. Even in the mechanical study of God's Word, the mechanics melt into encouragement. I spend sometimes 8 to 10 hours straight studying, preparing for Wednesday nights or for studies or for Bible studies, for Sunday mornings. And I will sit there and I will start off the morning with a blank page in front of me. Open my Bible, pray, and begin to read and just jot down whatever comes. And it's mechanical at first. Well, what does this word mean? What does that word mean? Lord, I want to understand. What do you mean by this phrase? Is there something that Spurgeon say something about this? You know, and I have certain go-to places to, to develop understanding and praying through and conversating with the Lord as I go through. And it begins mechanically. I guarantee you there has not been a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, those days especially that I'm in the Word, that I have not walked out of my office encouraged. Even if I'm tired, I start the day going... Okay, I got nothing for Romans 16. Nothing. And I start out and start to just work in, invariably, 5, 10, 15 minutes into it, I'm starting to be encouraged already. That's what God's Word does. I didn't understand that as a younger man. It intimidated me. I'd open the Bible and I'd read a verse and I'd start to wander off somewhere else. You know, and I'd try and come back and I'd wander off somewhere else. God's Word is remarkably encouraging. Stay with it. Stay in it. And you will be encouraged. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Not just some comfort. Not a smidgen of comfort. The God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And that comes of the encouraging word. 19th century preacher G.S. Bose said the following. He said, speak to me now in scripture language alone, said a dying Christian. I can trust the words of God, but when they are the words of man, it costs me an effort to think whether I may trust them or not. Spurgeon himself said when George Peabody was staying at Sir Charles Reed's house, you know George Peabody and Charles Reed, of course, when he was staying there, he saw the youngest child bringing to his father a large Bible for the family prayers. And Mr. Peabody said, Ah, my boy, you carry the Bible now, but the time is coming when you will find that the Bible must carry you. This is the word of encouragement. And inasmuch as it develops in us patient continuance, it is an encouraging word, the persevering word, the encouraging word, and finally number three, the hopeful word. The hopeful word. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Hope, the word elpis in the Greek. It means confident expectation. Hope is not hoping against hope. Hope is not a blind just, oh man, please. It's not a wish. In fact, I don't even like the word wish. Hoping is not wishful thinking. It is confident expectation that what you believe is going to come to pass. It is the very expression of our faith. Go back to the prographo again. Go to Job. What did he say? Job 33 verse 28. He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit and my life shall see the light. This he said as he was in the ashes rotting away. Behold, he says, God does all these things oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. That's hope. It wasn't that Job didn't know it would happen. He knew it would. He just didn't know when. And he sought and struggled with the Lord to get to that place of understanding. 4,000 years ago, by the way, Job understood, knew that there was life after death. He spoke even of going to the house of all the living, which is death. He spoke of going to that place and then meeting his Redeemer. And talking to His Redeemer. And understanding the ways of His Redeemer. He knew about resurrection. Job did, 4,000 years ago. We believe Job was a contemporary of Abraham. Abraham believed in resurrection. 
firmly, fiercely. He knew there was life after death. That's why he led Isaac up Mount Moriah. That's why he was willing to sacrifice him. Abraham didn't know that God was going to stay his hand. Abraham didn't know that when the knife went up, it wasn't going to come thrusting down into the body of his son. But he believed God was good to his word. And if God said, through Isaac, all of his offspring, and Isaac didn't have a baby at the time, through Isaac, all your offspring shall be blessed, then Abraham believed in resurrection. And Hebrews 11.19 tells us as much. He considered that God is able to raise people, even from the dead, from which he also received Isaac back as a type. Again, Abraham, buying that field of Machpelah and the cave there for a burial cave in the land that had only yet been promised to him. What a weird thing to do. As Sarah had died, he needed a place to bury her. And so he was offered the cave for free. He could have just stuck her body in there and been done with it. But Abraham knew, no, there's a promise on the table here. There's a covenant promise that this land is my land. Therefore, he didn't have to buy all the land. He just needed to buy the cave. And he put forth the money for the cave so he would have a place right there in the promised land. Why? So that in the resurrection, he could walk right out into the promise given to him. Abraham believed in resurrection. What about Jacob? Jacob would charge his sons to carry his dead body back to that same cave out of Egypt where he would die back to the same cave at Machpelah. Why? Because he expected to be resurrected from there. It's David's reassurance throughout the Psalms. That famous Psalm 16 verse 10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It was David who wrote Psalm 42 verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become discouraged or disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. The hopeful word. Man, I can go on and on and on and you know it. But the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament as well, The whole Bible is pinned in hope. Hope for the future of Israel. Hope for the promised resurrection. Hope in the first and indeed the second comings of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The book of hope. And Paul told us in Romans 5 verse 5, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You want hope that does not disappoint? Read it. It is a book of great hope. Titus 2.13 tells us that we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. This is the persevering word. This is the encouraging word. This is the hopeful word. Two final notes why this is so important. Why this word matters so much. This is God's holy manual that does two things. Number one, it prepares a people for the world to come. Remember, we're in this place of exhortation in Romans 12 through 16. And Paul is bringing to light the reason for all the doctrine and the exhortation that is in this letter, and it is because it is preparing us for the next age. This is kingdom preparation. God's holy manual to prepare a people for the world to come. Jeremiah 31.34 in its entirety says, They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You're not going to have any more teaching. Small groups, obsolete. Sunday morning teaching, unnecessary. Because you're going to know me. When, Lord? In the next age. In kingdom come. And so this book is preparing us for that. God's holy manual. But you all know this even more so. This holy manual is to prepare a people for the world to come and to point a people to the Word made flesh. To point us to Jesus. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Jesus 
He's the reason the Old Testament saints had hope. Jesus, He's the source of the New Testament saints' encouragement. And Jesus is the one who gave Bishop Hugh Latimer perseverance even in the flames of his own martyrdom. Romans 15.5 Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise You and thank You again and again for this most holy word. We thank You that You saw fit to present to us, Father, the Scriptures in their entirety. Lord, for the perseverance that we draw from them, the great comfort and encouragement that we receive, and the hope that is laid out before us, this this is absolutely a remarkable word. Father, I pray that Your Word will literally alter this fellowship. I believe, Father, that we have already come into days where the Word is being maligned. And we may yet see days where the Word is being not only discounted but, and, and dismissed, Lord, but even illegal. I don't know. I pray we won't. I pray, Lord Jesus, that You come before that day happens. But in an age where so many are trying to shelve the Word of God, I pray that our Bibles in our fellowship here would be worn thin, would be well-read, Father, would be poured over, carried with us wherever we go, searched and understood, prayerfully meditated upon. I pray, Holy Spirit, that You will make us truly to be a people of Your Word and a people who have learned to rely on You, strengthened in this day and in this age by the the very Word that You have given. Father, prepare us for the age to come. And Lord, help us continually to see Jesus in the words of this book and by the remembrance of Your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.